All right, well, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, if you haven't already, and let's make our way to Philippians chapter 4, as this morning we continue our little mini-series here on Sundays that we've entitled Sheltered in Joy. As Paul the Apostle was writing to this church, he was in prison. He had appealed to Caesar to see how Caesar would rule in his case. Paul was alone. He did not know when his appointment or his appearance before Caesar would take place. He didn't know the outcome of his case. He didn't know if he'd be released to continue preaching the gospel throughout the uh, region of Asia Minor and throughout the Roman Empire, or if this would be the moment in which Caesar would take his life. And being in this position, while he had this time and this time of pause, he began to think about the various churches that God used him to plant throughout the various region. And one of those churches was a church in a city called Philippi. And his first arrival there at Philippi didn't go as scripted. You know, it has often been said, you know, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And as Paul made his way there into Philippi, he quickly found himself incarcerated. And as he was brought into jail, he was brought to the deepest portion of the jail. There he was placed in stockades with Silas. And as he began to uh, begin to uh, realize his situation, he decided in his heart to praise God for God's faithfulness. And you know the story that is found in the book of Acts. The, the, an earthquake occurred and all of the prison was shook to the point that the prison doors were open. This led to a series of events and it also led to the planting of a church there in Philippi. And some years have passed now And the church in Philippi, like Paul, was also experiencing suffering and persecution. Many of the Christians of the city of Philippi were unwilling to recognize Caesar as a god, and therefore they were persecuted for it. Because they wouldn't worship him as he desired to be worshipped, he began to persecute them in various ways and in various phases throughout their history. And finally, many were incarcerated. But first, their place of prominence within the city was taken away from them. They lost their job. Their wealth was taken by the Roman Empire, and therefore they lost their material possessions simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And some now finding themselves in the last phase of the persecution, incarcerated there in Philippi under this great weight of persecution and in suffering, Paul the Apostle, while he too is found in prison, is showing them and helping them to discover joy in an incredibly difficult circumstance. But it wasn't only the difficult circumstance that they were confronted by. They also felt that they were alone in this. And often we feel alone when we are confronted with an enormous circumstance that has overwhelmed us or maybe even blindsided us. We didn't see it coming. We can often feel alone at that moment. And so many people today feel alone as we have been asked to remain in our homes for the majority of the time during the week. 
Many of us have no one to talk to within that home. And we can easily come to the conclusion that we are alone in this trial. Well, last week we discovered that Paul wanted to remind them that they were never alone. That Jesus was near to them. But it only wasn't a feeling of being alone that troubled them. It was also the sense that in the shadow of this incredible circumstance or situation, that the outcome was unknown. Like Paul, he didn't know if he would be taken to heaven or if he would be uh, allowed to remain and continue his work as an apostle. The same was true for those in Philippi. They didn't know if they were going to be released to go back to society or to leave that region and to settle somewhere else or if their life would be taken from them. And I don't know about you, but facing the unknown often can lead us to worry and fear and anxiety faster than anything else. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. Maybe you've gone in for a doctor's visit and they said, well, listen, under these circumstances, we need to run some tests. And then after running those tests, they tell you, well, it's going to be a week or so before we'll know the answer. And that week can just drag on, can't it? The hours just tick by and it just seems like everything is in slow motion. Uncertainty is a great component that will lead one to fear. And I believe that as we look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul wants to confront that uncertainty. He wants to allow them to have a, a confidence and a security at an incredibly vulnerable and insecure moment. So how do you do that? Well, Paul the Apostle takes us and he begins to wrap up this letter to the church in Philippi by asking them to think on these things. So let's pick it up in verse 8. In verse 8, we look and we read, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, it would be easy simply to reduce these to a simple definition of each one of these words. But historians now tell us that what Paul is doing is that he is quoting what many of the philosophers of that day were prescribing for individuals that were going through distressful periods of time in their life. Philosophers in that era were consulted uh, and looked to to be the intellectuals of that era and often tried to use the issue of philosophy or their principles to comfort people in times of distress. And so... As the philosophers brought, that, brought out the idea that during painful times, let us concentrate upon pleasurable things. For the Epicureans, for the Stoics, all uh, believed that exact same principle or line of thought. 
Paul appears to be quoting what they would put forward. In fact, we read that very clearly this uh, parallels the list of things that these philosophers would put forward to ask people to uh, think upon as they were going through distressful situations. You know, the Bible makes it clear that a lot of our heart attitude is first derived in the mind, including righteousness and sin. You know, the Bible makes it clear in James that sin begins in the mind of an individual, and therefore, eventually, when it works forward itself out into manifestation, it therefore leads to death. But Paul the Apostle also asks us to be, uh, by the, be righteous by the renewing of our mind. And I believe that our mind, first and foremost, must be governed, as Christ said, let us love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Our mind is a battlefield. The ideas in which we adopt play out throughout our lives. Now, Many today in our society would like to tell us that simply by thinking positively, we can change our reality. But we know that's not the case, don't we? It doesn't matter how positively we think, that that positivity is not going to change our circumstances that we are confronted by. However, though, we know that thinking positively or thinking along the lines in which Paul is encouraging here can bring about an attitude within our own heart. Now, as we look at this passage together, let us understand that he is asking them to think on these things. Notice that with me in verse 8. That word think there. In the New King James, I like the word that they use there better. It is the word meditate, and it really brings about the flavor of the Old Testament concept of meditation. Now, meditation in the Bible, in the Jewish culture, is much different than the Eastern idea of meditation that many are familiar with. The word meditation in the Hebrew could also simply be uh, translated, uh, you know, where we contemplate something. It's a term that's actually used in the Hebrew for a cow, and I know this might be a little too early in the morning for such an illustration, but when a cow feeds on the cud that is around him or her, then the cow swallows it, they then regurgitate that, that feed, they chew on it again, and then they regurgitate it, and they do that several times to make sure that they obtain every ounce of nutrition from that various bit of food. The Bible encourages us to meditate on God's Word, chew on it, contemplate it, allowing it to have its perfect work within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural dynamic to our Christian faith. And Paul the Apostle, in saying this, he is asking them not to concentrate on the unknown, but to remain focused upon what they do know. Pastor Chuck Smith famously put it this way when he said, you never abandon that which you know for that which you don't know. And Paul is asking them to consider what they know to be true at this moment. And he's using an example just like he did in Acts 17 when he used a poem of that time to help them understand that they were all children of God. Now he is using a quote from secular society, 
but he placed a very significant caveat upon it in verse 9 that makes all the difference in the world. But let us first and foremost understand that when we are confronted with the unknown, we have to then take into consideration and we have to make the decision, are we going to continue to let and allow our minds to drift into the unknown, beginning to contemplate every what-if circumstance and scenario, or are we going to fall back at that moment on the rock and stand upon those things that we know to be true? Now, let us understand that when we are often in, in this position, it's a position of great vulnerability. When we're overwhelmed by some enormous circumstance or trial or trouble or tribulation within our life, and we feel alone at that moment, and then on top of it, we have an unknown resolve at the end. We don't know how this is going to play out. It is so easy and I think natural for us to begin to wander into what I call the woods of what if and begin to get lost amongst the trees of the different what-if scenarios that can take place within our lives. And as we get snarled in this jungle of what-ifs, we begin to lose those things that we know to be true. Those promises of Scripture that have been given to us through God's Word. And we begin to forget about those things. We begin to forget, as Peter wrote to us, that every trial that we experience, we experience because God feels it necessary to allow us to experience. That God will lead us into various trials when needed, Peter writes. Or when those various trials, we can have the confidence that because of our love for God, that they are working together for a greater purpose in conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in the book of Romans. And also let us understand that we can forget, like Paul wrote here in the book of Philippians, that he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Or as the Bible tells us, that every promise that God is, has given us, He is able to perform. Those are the things that we forget when we begin to find ourselves lost in the forest of what-ifs. And you and I at that time can become incredibly volatile, incredibly vulnerable, because we have taken our eyes off of the Lord and we've put them on our circumstances we have allowed our heart to believe that we are alone at that moment and then we become blinded by the unknown. So Paul wants to bring us back. He says, now concentrate on these things. And these are great things to concentrate on. And as you go through the various lists, you discover very quickly that Paul is asking us to look at things in a very distinctive manner. When he says he talks about true, he's talking about those things that are not false or unreliable, but are genuine and real. When he talks about honorable, he's talking about honorable or morally attractive. When he talks about being just, it means just in the sense of righteousness, that uh, man towards man and man towards God. When he's talking about purity, 
He's talking about a high moral character of a person's life. When he's talking something that is lovely, he is talking about something that is admirable or agreeable to behold and to consider. When he's talking about commendable, he is talking of that of someone who is of good reputation or of fair sounding. Now, I'd like to propose something. Because I believe that Paul is doing here in our text the exact same thing that he's doing, that he did, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul was confronted with the reality that many of his Gentile readers, the recipients of his letter there in the city of Corinth, didn't fully understand the true definition of the word agape, the word love. In the Greek culture, it was a word that wasn't used very often. And when it was used, it was often used in a manner that uh, designated a specific definition to the word that was culturally known, but may not be known outside of that regional area. It wasn't like the word phileo, which means brotherly love or friendship love or eros or storge. You know, these words were used more often in the conversations to describe the word love. But when Paul began to realize that his recipients didn't understand the full magnitude of the weight of the word agape, he needed to define it for them, especially since he says this is the greatest gift that a church or an individual believer can manifest within their life. So it was important that he truly nail this down. And so he needed to define it. He needed to give them a definition to the word that they could understand and carry forward. Well, I don't know about you, but looking at grammar so often as I do as a a pastor studying God's word and other texts, one of the most frustrating things I run into is that when I look up a word in a dictionary and the definition of that word is the same word. It means that someone who wrote that dictionary really didn't know what that word meant, so they just simply supplemented it uh, with the same word. Notice as you begin to study how often that occurs. And part of the reason for that is because there are regional understandings of that word, and so if they were to list a simple regional understanding, it may exclude a various number of other people who are not in that region consulting that dictionary. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'd like you to notice how Paul defines the word love in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is something we've talked about in the past, but I think it's important for us to understand and to know this morning. Starting in verse 4, after telling us that the greatest of all is love, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, for love never fails." Now, it is interesting because many scholars, when seeing this, realize that Paul was defining this word agape. But what was he using to define that word? Well, did he simply select 
a number of words to describe that word agape. And in the Greek, we notice that all of these words are in the verb case, meaning that they're actions rather than nouns. And so many scholars began to see that what Paul was putting forward was not only a definition, but it was a definition based upon a description. And that description was the action and the person of Jesus Christ. He saw the manner in which Christ conducted himself and began to use those characteristics, those attributes, to define this word agape. Meaning that we learn from the life of Jesus Christ what the true word agape means here in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the manner in which Christ carried himself. And that's why so many have discovered that if you replace the word love with God or Jesus, look at how naturally it reads, if you will do so. Notice with me in verse 4. Let's use the word Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boasts. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. It is not, uh, he is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Jesus never fails. And I think that's a very interesting thing to consider. Because I believe Paul the Apostle is doing exactly the same thing here. Though it is wonderful to think about these words individually, but let us know that they are all a attribute and a, and a, a characteristic of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ found there in verse 8 of our text. And I also believe that because of what he says in verse 7. Notice there with me. When he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, what? In Christ Jesus. Already building that segue into seeing that the character of Christ can be described, that he is true, and he is honorable, and he is just, and he is pure, and he is lovely, and he is commendable. Of course, all excellence is found in Jesus. And Paul was putting forward this, that to further comfort them and to help them see the reality that Christ is near, verse 6, he then goes on to proceed to describe Christ using the words that the secular philosophers would use, saying simply remember these type of acts and these type of pleasurable things when you are, find yourselves in a moment of distress. Paul says, yeah, you can think about these things, but the real source of all change and all power is Christ our Lord. So think about Him at this moment. Now, why do I further believe that? Because of what it states in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 9. Look there with me. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice that Paul once again brings them back to his personal example of all that he did while he was with them. Paul the Apostle knew that any kind of theological development, any type of understanding of righteousness, 
was all derived from the person and the character of Jesus Christ, of God. So Paul saw the righteousness of Christ and acted it out in his own life. Now he's encouraging them to do so due to the fact that he asked them to be reasonable amongst their persecutors, graceful, calm, gentle, as Christ was when he was taken by the Romans to be tortured, to be spat upon, to be whipped, to be crucified. Paul's saying that this is going to play out when your mind is set on Christ, knowing the example in which he has put forward for us. It is this example that I, Paul, put before you. Now you continue and practice these things, knowing full, full forward that everything that we do originates in the mind. Right? Sin starts in the mind. If we are to live righteously, it starts in the mind, according to Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, put your mind on these things. And when we do so, when we once again focus on the reality of who Christ is and what he is doing, we are going to be less susceptible to forget the promises that he has made to us when we begin to wander off into that uh, wilderness of what-ifs. And it'll draw us back. And it'll allow us to react in grace and kindness and love. Because this is what our Savior did. And God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Jesus promised peace to his followers. Not a peace that the world has, but a peace that he gives to us. A peace that Paul further alluded to in verse 7 when he says that God will guard your hearts and minds with a peace that surpasses all understanding for those in Christ Jesus. So a wonderful continuation of thought. As you and I begin to face the different circumstances that overwhelm us in life, even the circumstance of the current crisis that we are in, many are struggling now because of the length of time. And now many are overwhelmed further by the extended length of time due to the plan that our governor has put forward. And many are beginning to have grave difficulties. We know issues of mental illness and mental health are skyrocketing. We know even some are taking their lives. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can shelter in joy by knowing that when we face the unknown, we have a reality in our life that keeps us grounded at that moment. When we face the unknown darkness that is before us, we have a light in the person of Jesus Christ that illuminates our way forward. We have His Word that allows us to take each and every step, each and every day. And as Paul was saying that joy can be obtained and maintained during such difficult, troublesome times. And here's how it can be. Let us not only bring our prayers and our supplications to God with thanksgiving, but let's keep our minds focused upon the person of Jesus Christ. Let us remember who He is and what He is doing and the promises that He has given us. He is faithful to perform. He will never relinquish on those promises that He has made to you and I. And though our faith is being tested and stretched in, some, in many ways for some, 
let us understand that God is with us in it all. I'm not here to play the short game. I'm here to play the long game. Let us understand that many trials that we face are not sprints, but marathons. And sometimes as we get closer to the end, the more grueling it becomes, the more difficult it becomes. Let us understand that you and I, in the current circumstances in which we find ourselves, are not alone. And we certainly do not progress into these uh, circumstances with uncertainty. Oh, we may not know what this new normal is going to be like, or how many freedoms that we are going to have left after this crisis has been uh, uh, completed. But we know that our relationship with Jesus Christ is sound. And nothing, absolutely nothing in this world can change that. Remember what Jesus said. If we will build our house upon his word, it's like building our house upon stone. And when the storms come, and they will come from every direction, our house will stand. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. No one knows. God does. But it is at this time now that you and I as believers in in Jesus Christ must find that place of resolve where we are going to get through this. And we are not going to submit and back down unnecessarily. We are not going to crumble under the weight of the pressures of the crisis in which we are faced because Christ sustains us. And we are His children and His followers. And we are part of His kingdom. And Paul wanted them to see the long game, knowing that this world is the worst it's ever going to be for us as believers. It's only going to get better once we move to that place. A lot of people are talking about moving out of the state of Illinois. You know, I, I would think that. I would understand that. But knowing me, I'd move out of the state of Illinois and whatever state I go to would probably would become worse than the one I'm already in, just the way it rolls for me sometimes. But when we get to heaven, things will never be the same. But like Paul, as he wrestled with his uncertainty, I don't know if this is going to be the end of it all or if God is going to send me into this world. I say let's push through to the end and let's continue sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen. Let's purpose in our hearts to be resolved and saying, hey, we're in it for the long game. We're in it for the long haul. And we're going to get through to the other side. And when we do, we are going to stand up for the glory of God like never before. Let's have that purpose in our hearts this morning as we focus and meditate on the person of Christ and the victory that he has given us in and through his death and resurrection.